Hi, everybody. My name is Derek, and I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, I want to wish everybody a happy 38th anniversary. And uh, I'd like to thank Dave for asking me to come down and uh, speak tonight. It's, uh, it's always, a, it's always a, a privilege to be asked to, to share the meaning of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never thought I'd say that, you know. <laughs> it's nice to see my friend Jerry over there. And, uh, and I did get engaged about four weeks ago, and that's the first time anybody's called this fiancé, so it was a strange kind of thing. So thank you. Um, you know, Janet read uh, a portion of Chapter 3, uh, uh, more about alcoholism, and uh, it started off by saying that most of us are unwilling to admit we are real alcoholics, and I am a real alcoholic. <clears throat> and then in the next sentence, it tells us uh, why we're unwilling to admit we are real alcoholics. And it tells us no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Now, uh, I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for many years, and I didn't know what it meant to be mentally and bodily different. I knew what it was to be bodily different, I think, because every time I drank, I had little or no control over the amount I took. You know, once I started, that was it. But I was a long way from understanding what it meant to be mentally different. You know, I didn't know I suffered from an obsession of the mind that was condemning me to drink against my will. See, I didn't know that. And therefore, as a result of not knowing that, it wasn't surprising that my drinking career was characterized by countless vain attempts, you see, to prove I could drink like other people. See, and for many years as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I tried to control my drinking by not drinking. See, I had a program that was going on for many years, which I thought was in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that was entitled How Not to Drink a Day at a Time. See, I was trying to control my drinking and not realizing I was mentally different. I didn't know I had an obsession of the mind. And so I was suffering from a delusion that there was something I could do about the first drink. So I'm a real alcoholic. See, I didn't understand that step one was asking me to admit I was powerless. See, and if I'm powerless, I'm powerless. I don't have any power an hour at a time, a minute at a time. See, I didn't have it at any time. See, I had an obsession that was condemning me to drink against my will. And so therefore, because I didn't really understand that, I didn't need a power greater than human power that was going to bring a change over me, that was going to remove this obsession from me. And so for years, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, uh, I practiced a program that really wasn't a program that's in our big book at all. I thought the big book was a method that was going to show me how not to drink. And the big book is not about that at all. See, the first three chapters of the big book, uh, including the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, more about alcoholism, see, and there is a solution, make it very clear that there's nothing we can do about the first thing. See, it says, why is it he takes that first drink? See, over and over and over again, he tells us why we're powerless over that first drink. In fact, it even compares our inability not to pick up the first drink to a jaywalker. And then it says we're suffering from something called an inability to think straight, a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. I didn't know any of that. Um, I was born in Ireland, uh, in Dublin, and that's probably, that was probably the first problem, you know. <laughs> I come from a country where we don't know what we're fighting about, but we're going to fight till we get it. You know? I think if you, put a, if you put a roof over Ireland, you'd have an insane asylum. You know, I didn't come from a dysfunctional family. I came from a very loving family. Yeah. I probably came from a dysfunctional country, though. You know? <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, I remember when I took my first drink. I remember the years uh, before I ever took a drink. I suffered from the thing I hear so many people sharing at meeting about Alex Namas, uh, and that was that incredible feeling of restlessness, uneasiness. I just didn't fit. I never fit it, you know. I didn't fit in with my religion. I was brought up in Ireland, and, uh, you know, uh, if you're born in Ireland, as I was, that's south of the border, you're going to be a Catholic, you know, and not too much you can do about that, you know. It's a 99% uh, sure probability you're going to be Catholic. I heard a fellow sharing at a meeting about Alex Namas once about what did that have to do with truth, and he brought up the thing if he'd been born in India, you know, there'd probably be a 70% chance he'd be a Hindu and a 30% chance of being a Muslim. And I suppose if I was born in Japan, my eyes would look a little different. I might be a Shinto or whatever. And you see, most of my beliefs about God were strictly fashioned by my birth. But I didn't realize that then. And I was um, about uh, four, 15 or 16, we had a Christian doctrine class. I mean, we had God morning, noon, and night in Ireland. You know, there was prayers before breakfast. There was prayers at breakfast. Prayers after breakfast, there was prayers in school, prayers before school, and then we had something called the rosary at night, and then the litany of all these relatives you prayed for, you know. There was no shortage of a belief in God going on. And about 16, we had this half-hour Christian doctrine, and see, if you're a Catholic, you can't ask any questions, you know, because uh, if you ask them, it's not too cool, you know. They send you somewhere in the next life, you know, that you don't want to go to. And uh, the question I said was... Uh, you know, if the Pope's infallible, you know, how come they're all Italian? And uh, the little brother said, it's a mystery, you know, everything is a mystery, you know. <laughs> so uh, about a week later, anyhow, I came into school and I hadn't got my homework assignment done, whatever it was. And he says, uh, Mr. Fullerton, he says, why don't you have your homework assignment done? And I said, it's a mystery, it's a mystery. <laughs> so that was the end of my Christian doctrine uh, episode. I was 86 from the class, but, I was one of those kids that used to blush and be embarrassed, you know, and they'd mention sexuality or something like that, and it was, oh, God, it was terrible, you know. And so I grew up with the idea that sex was dirty and bad and, you know, that kind of stuff going on. A, a terrible problem in later life, you know, but uh, that's the way it was. And uh, around about 18, I had my first drink. Now, I, I've heard many speakers talk about the first drink, and I was down at an archival conference in Tucson about uh, two months ago. And I met a man down there who, uh, his name was Jim H., and he's still a member of the original Oxford group, which today is known as Moral the Army. And get this, his date of sobriety is December 12, 1934, still alive, 91 years old, the day after Bill Wilson. And uh, Charlie was there out of Joe and Charlie, and he gave the best description of, uh, of a first drink that I ever heard in my life. And uh, mine was no exception, uh, because up until that point, I was, I was just, as the book talks about in the doctor's opinion, I was maladjusted to life. I was just maladjusted. I was in full flight for me. I just couldn't seem to fit in. It felt like I came from another planet. And when I had that first drink, I remember exactly where it was, uh, who I was with, and it was two Carlsberg beers. It was in a little pub on the outskirts of Dublin called the Silver Granite. And I will tell you what happened when I had that first drink. It's perfectly described in our big book on page 83 and 84. I was amazed before I was halfway through. I got to know a new freedom. I comprehended the word serenity, and by God, I knew peace. See, when I was drinking, my whole attitude and outlook upon life changed. You know? It really did. You know? I, uh, I, my fear of people, economic insecurity, just went right out the window. You know? 
because the spirit of alcohol did for me what nothing else could do. I had the nine-step promises right away. Now, that should have taught me something right then, but it didn't. See, it was only many years later when I realized what our big book tells us, that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. And that alcohol, the spirit of alcohol, was able to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I had that wonderful feeling of ease, peace in my life for the first time. Alcohol worked. Did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I went to university in Dublin and I was there about two years when I think I decided I knew more than everybody, you know, suffering from that tremendous grandiosity and pride that we all seem to suffer from. And I went off to London. And, uh, you know, uh, it was, it just went on from there. You know, I suppose my, my whole drunk a lot could be summarized by the statement, my life didn't work out the way I planned it. You know, it just, just didn't. And, and it was crazy. You know, uh, I, I hung around in different places and, uh, in the beginning it seemed that, that drinking was working for me. But, uh, my life, the time started to go on, and I was always wondering when my real life was going to start. And I, you know, when is my real life going to start? You know, when's it going to happen? And, uh, I had a friend of mine at the time, a guy called, uh, John O'Toole. He was a bartender in a, in a bar there, and, uh, all of you fine American people used to come over and have nice vacations and stuff like that. And he said, Derek, you know, all these Americans, they've got lots of money. Maybe we should go to New York, you know? And, uh, you know, most people would sit down and think about that, but if you're an alcoholic, you know, what's there to think about, you know? And so three days later, we're in New York, you know, no visa, no nothing, we're on some tourist visa, and uh, I spent six months uh, there, went down to Baltimore, and uh, came back to London again, and uh, then he had another idea, and then I wound up in Argentina, you know, I mean, just the way it is, and they kept bouncing around like that, and about 1976, uh, I was back in the States again, and I didn't have a visa, and I was dating this lady, and uh, she thought it would be a good idea if we got married, you know, so that I'd get a visa, so that was what happened. And, uh, you know, my life was going back and forward, and as the years were going by like this, I began to look back and think about some of the friends that I'd gone to school with and gone to college with, and, you know, a lot of these people, again, as the book talks about, seem to be demonstrating a degree of usefulness we should have sought for ourselves. You know, they were settling down with families, or they seemed to be doing well in business, or working on whatever jobs they were working on. They were able to put a little money aside, maybe buy a home or a house. And I didn't seem to be able to do that. And you see, I hung out behind the idea that I was some sort of less than or superior kind of person. You know, I, I think I thought I was a writer or something, you know, like I never wrote anything in my life, you know, but uh, I had the idea that that's what I was. Like, I, I remember in Baltimore, I'd go from bar to bar, and... Uh, I'd come back and I'd say to Kathy, you know, I'm working on some research, you know, and getting some practical information on the world, you know. And I remember Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore, and I kind of related to him a little bit, you know, but he died a drunk too, but at least he wrote something, you know. In fact, it got so bad later on when I finally did my fourth step, I had Stephen King on my fourth step, you know, he wrote lots of books, and I was pissed off at him, you know. He used to say, well, he didn't write anything really good, you know, like me, you know. <laughs> Jesus, I heard a fellow say an alcoholic scratch shit that doesn't itch, and it's true, it's a perfect description of it, you know, things that would upset me, you know. And so, I think it was around about 76 or so, I did my first fourth step. I had this brief moment of clarity that was about three seconds long, and it seemed to me I ought to take a serious look at my life, and uh, it was around then I, I began to think about God or something. I don't know what I was thinking about God, but I decided one Sunday to go to church, 
Now, you, any of you here, I'm not making fun of anyone's religion. Well, maybe I am, but it's in good jest, so what the heck. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you've got to go to Mass on Sunday, because if you don't go to Mass on Sundays, you know you go to hell. So I hadn't been to Mass on a few Sundays, and uh, this was Easter Sunday, and so I decided I'd go to Mass this Easter Sunday. You know. If you miss Mass on Sunday, it's bad enough, but if you miss Mass on an Easter Sunday and you're Catholic, that's a major no-no. You know, you, I don't know, maybe you, they burn you extra crispy or something for that deal, you know. It's a, it's a definite no-no. So anyhow, away I went to the, to the church, you know, and uh, I can remember at the back of the church there were some people, or the front of the church, I can't remember, and they, they, maybe they were converts or something, but they had that look in their eye, you know, that peaceful look. And I wanted that. I wanted that look. But even then, you know, the way we pick out falls, I remember being in that church this day, and it was the cathedral in Baltimore, and there were lights like this up on the top of the church, you know. There must have been a thousand light bulbs. And I spotted three that weren't working, you know. There's 997 light bulbs working, and I'm looking at the three, and I'm saying to myself, let's tell the priest about that, you know, after the service is over, you know. We pick out these flaws in people, you know. It's unbelievable, you know. And uh, so anyhow, I decided that uh, I needed to change my life. And uh, I felt like such a failure. You know, I, I didn't know this at the time, but, but I, I had a father that was very loving, and uh, he wanted his son to do well. And uh, as a result of wanting him to do well, he would always say to me, you know, no matter where I got in class, he'd say, well, you could have done better. You could have done better. So I had this belief I was a failure, but it wasn't until I worked through my fourth step that I began to see that that was going on in my life. And uh, so to get over this thing of being such a failure in life, I, I figured that, the, well, you've you got to make some money. Isn't that the deal, man? If you make some money, you're, you're a success. So I, I had my first honest look at myself, and I said to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll be a doctor, you know. And then instantly I decided on that. I said, geez, you've got to go to college for six years. Couldn't do that, you know. That was the end of that. And then I thought about a lawyer, and that was a similar deal, you know, much too hard work for that. Can't do that. And then I thought of sales, sales. Now there's an idea, you know. Maybe you could do that, Derek. You know, you're not your bullshit artist, you know, alcoholics are. And so anyhow, I look in the yellow pages and I look for a sales agency, you know. And I find some place called Sales World, and I call them up. And I went along to this guy, and I, you make up the resume of the day, you know, rigorous honesty, you know. And uh, he finally gave me a shot, and he took me off to some interview. Anyhow, it was up in a little place called Pennsylvania. We drove up there, and I'd had about. Uh, I'd had a few beers with him on the way, so I was feeling a little loose. And we went into this interview, and there was a guy outside the main interview deal, and he says, well, you'll have six interviews, and uh, if you get this one, you'll go to the second one. And Of course, armed with a few beers, now I looked at him, and I said, I'll have one interview, this one, and I'll get it, you know, a more grandiosity. Sales is a great business for alcoholics, because the more character defects you got, the more money you make, you know. <laughs> and the more money you make, the more character defects you get, you know. So uh, anyhow, I went in for this interview, and it was the usual situation. You know, there was a table lined up there, and there was about six guys behind it, and they put me sitting on a chair. And there was about 20, 25 minutes of these pleasantries that went along, you know, uh, all this kind of small talk and conversations, and I waxed away lyrically, you know, thinking I'm scoring points. And then finally, it came to the thing where he says, well, why do you want to be a sales engineer with this corporation? And I thought a moment, and I said, well, Dave, I said, some people, when they're 20, you know, they want to be doctors. And, People when they're 19, they want to be carpenters, and some people when they're, you know, 21, they want to be nurses, and some people they want to be firemen. And I said, ever since I was four years old, I wanted to be a sales engineer with your corporation, you know. So, <laughs> and you, there was a, you could have heard a pin drop, and the next thing, the whole place burst out laughing. He says, "You wait out there, you know." 
And so I did. And about 10 minutes later, he came out and he said, you got the job, you know. And this guy just looked at you. Well, that was the greatest job I think I ever had in my life. It was one big piss up for nine months. They flew me around to a, to a place called Michigan City in Indiana, coldest damn place you've ever been in your life. And every two weeks, they'd fly me back to Baltimore and then uh, six months up in Indiana. And I learned all about... Uh, they were selling uh, these huge plant air equipment, you know, centrifugal compressors. And then they sent me to Michigan City, you know, where they, I learned all about blasting equipment. And, you know, when I was drunk, I'd pretend I'm in the IRA, you know. And, you know, the usual lies you tell, you know, to look good, you know, that kind of stuff. So I got transferred finally across to uh, California. And uh, Kathy and I got married, but not in the sense of a marriage that was going to last. And we got divorced, and I gave her what little I had. And I had a little Fiat. I remember I bought this Fiat for 200 bucks. And it was uh, an amazing little car, because when you stood on the brakes, the hood would go up, the trunk would go up, you know, and the radio would start playing by itself. But I headed off uh, to California, and it was my sales territory was in Southern California. And I had about 200 bucks in my pocket and a bottle of booze and an ounce of pot, you know, that stuff we don't use in AA. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I w my real life was starting to last. Here I was, you know, and I was heading west, you know, and way I went across the desert, you know, and it was, I was stoned out of my gorge, you know, going across the desert, and the car had hit a bump, the radio would come on, I'd go, oh, shit, you know, what's that, you know. Finally, I got across the desert, and there it was, the Pacific Ocean. And I was thrilled to death, you know, and it was St. Patrick's Day, 1978, when I got there. Of course, I had to get drunk. And I found a little bar then called Muldoon's Irish Pub, you know, down in Newport Beach. It was a great little bar, and it was the right kind of place that I liked to hold court, you know. And uh, it was Irish in name only, because it was owned by a Jewish guy and managed by a Mexican, but it was Muldoon's Irish Pub, you know. And... Uh, Geez, I hated this job I was in now. I was in the, this, I, I'd had uh, two DUIs. I got a DUI up in India, in, in Buffalo. And another one, I was no sooner out in California, I got another one. And, uh, you know, I, I just hated this job. I was never really made for working, you know, too much. You know, a lot of alcoholics will relate to that. But I hated this damn job. Anyhow, I was sitting in this bar one night, and a fellow came over, and, uh, Jose, who was the manager. He said, there's another Irish guy here. Would you like to meet him? And so I sat down, this guy was from Limerick, and he owned a brokerage business. He had a franchise in the brokerage business, and I was to get into the same business that our co-founder Bill got into. And he says to me, we talked till one in the morning, and he sold a lot of commodities and stocks and stuff like that. And he said, man, he says, you could make a lot of money doing this. Now, this is what appealed to me, you know. I didn't want a little money every year. I'm, I'm a self-centered, selfish alcoholic, you know, and I want to make as much as I can in as short a period as possible and then get out wherever I get out to, you know. But I had this theory that if you made a lot of bucks, you know, then you'd be happy, you know, whatever you were going to do then. Never figure that part of it out, but that was the deal. And uh, I started working for that guy, and within about uh, two months, I was the top salesman in five offices nationwide, and I had arrived. And this was the late 70s when gold prices were going up. So, geez, everyone was making money, you know. I began to wonder why I ever worried about money, you know. And within a year, I bought a house in Dana Point overlooking the ocean. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was 30 years old or something like that. And I was a millionaire, literally, in, in the space of uh, two years. It was an incredible story. The only one problem, you know, uh, I was drinking a lot, you know, and I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. The house didn't do it. The money didn't do it. Here I was, a young immigrant kid. And I'd achieved, I suppose, what you might say is the American success story. And I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. 
I was paranoid, too, you know. I, I, I'd taken to doing a little of the white powder, you know, that we don't talk about either. That's the kind of stuff where you throw yourself on the ground when the mailman comes, you know. <laughs> the mailman! <laughs> you know? And, uh... You know that? Amazing people. Nobody knows about that, huh? <laughs> so, um... And then I had this idea that there was going to be an earthquake, you know. I mean, if you're in Southern California, you're going to have earthquakes. So I wouldn't hang any paintings on the wall, you know, in case they broke, you know. So there's nothing on the walls, you know. It's, it's like living in the mausoleum. And I had all these weird ideas about stuff. And I had a friend of mine called George. And uh, George was the kind of drinker that I liked to drink with. And every alcoholic uh, has got someone called, maybe not George, but... George was the kind of guy that I said to myself, if I ever get as bad as George, I'm going to do something. You know that kind of guy? Now, I had sensed in a way that there might be something wrong with my drinking, but I, you know, wasn't too sure about it. But I figured that maybe if George, you know, that I got as bad as him. Well, uh, I was scared to death of getting DUI, so I'd taken to sit sleeping in a cot in the office. And brokerage firms open up very early on the West Coast, about 5, 5.30 in the morning. The exchanges are all back east. And one morning, George came in. It was about 5.30, and I'd been, I was sleeping on the sofa. And... Uh, he says to me, he says, Derek, he says, you look awful. Maybe you ought to do something with yourself. This is George saying to me, if I ever get as bad as George. And, you know, we've had a lot of fun together. We used to sit in the bars, and uh, we, we used to, favorite thing was to sit around the piano bar in a place called the Five Crowns, and we'd throw money into the snifters, you know. And we were making a lot of money. We must have made ridiculous idiots, you know, but it seemed a lot of fun at the time. And I had one of those moments. I, uh, two weeks before, I'd met a lady in a bar, and... Uh, I'd been talking with her. I'd known her for a while, and I didn't recognize her. And uh, after about a half an hour, I noticed she was drinking non-alcoholic drinks, and I bought her a drink, and uh, I said, What happened to you, Jeannie, was the girl's name. She said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. This was just two weeks previously. Now, I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. This was in 1980. Never heard of it. And if I ever had, it hadn't registered in my brain mind for some reason. I just hadn't there. But well, that morning when George said to me, he says, why don't you do something with yourself? Something seemed to go off in my mind between AA and the 28-day program she'd gone through. And I had that moment. And I remember getting up and asking George, could I borrow a razor? And we used to keep stuff in the office. And I went out to the bathroom and I shaved myself shakily. And I remember looking in the mirror. And there was that moment when I got to see myself the way you see me the way you see me. I was 140 pounds. I'm six foot one. I was 40 pounds underweight. 135, 140 pounds. My hair was thinning, was seedy. My eyes were that color. There was this screaming in my mind. And you know, before then, when I looked in the mirror, I saw this fabulous guy that it was a privilege for you to go out with me, you know. <laughs> when I looked in the mirror that morning, I'll never forget that feeling, that horrible, horrible feeling, that awful death feeling, that squirming madness that goes on in your mind. And I, I hated everything I saw about myself. I hated it all. Everything. And mustering what courage I had, I got in the car and I drove down to South Laguna Beach and I checked myself into this place. And it was a, a hospital there. It was a care unit. And uh, I waited for a lull, you know, when I went up to the reception area to check yourself in. I mean, I, I didn't know what to ask for. I, I come from a country where, you know, the idea of surrender is something that just isn't considered at all. 
you know, it just isn't. My father had a saying to me, which came from the Greek saying, it was, come back with your shield, or honest. In the old Greek thing, if you came back with your shield, you were successful in the battle. If you came back on your shield, you were dead. But don't come back any other way. And I, when I went into this thing, I mean, we, I, I never been a psychiatrist, never talked about that. My express purpose in life was always to never let you know how I was feeling at all. And that was in the culture I was brought up in was the measure of a man. I've since learned how insane that is, but that's the way I was brought up. And uh, I waited and I walked up to this place and uh, I said to the woman, I said, I believe you have a place here for, uh, you know, people who might drink a little bit, you know. And she says, oh, you mean the alcoholic ward? And I went, oh, shit, you know, don't say that, you know. And I went up to the fifth floor. And uh, I met a, I'd, I'd love to know the name of this nurse. It's the years have gone by since, and I, I can't recall her. But uh, I started crying. I, I just broke, you know. And uh, she said to me, do you want to check in? And I said, yes. And she said, do you want to call your boss? And like Dr. Bob and Vision for You, I had the familiar alcoholic obsession that no one knew my drinking. You know, and... Uh, I thought I was going to get fired. She called my boss, and my boss said, my God, that's great. Thank God you're going to do something with this guy, you know? And, uh, and so I went into that 28-day program, and this was in 1980. Uh, within a few days, uh, my boss had grabbed George and hammered him in there, too. The two of us were in the same room, you know? And within three days, I think, or four days, maybe it was the first week, I was to go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was a man there called Chuck C., and later went to his funeral. I didn't know him very well, but uh, since got to know his memory very well, listened to a lot of his stuff. I wish I'd been awake then to listen to what he had to say. And he lived uh, very close to where I lived at that time. But I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't a meeting like this, but it was one of our typical meetings. And uh, I'd never been before, and, uh, you know, we like to fit in, don't we? And uh, everybody put their hands up and said they were alcoholics, and they went around the room, and not wishing to be left up, out, I put my hand up, and I said, my name is Derek, I'm an alcoholic too, you know. Uh, you see, I didn't fully know what it meant to be an alcoholic, and that's probably the worst mistake I ever made in my life. And bear with me while I just explain that to you. And by the way, what I'm telling you is my own experience. This is what happened to me. It's my story. It's just what happened to me. It may not be yours. But, you know, if they had said they were potatoes, I'd have put my hand up and said, I'm a potato, you know, I'm an alcoholic, you know. What the hell's an alcoholic? You know, I dare say if you go around the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and you ask everybody in the room what's an alcoholic, what's the chances you'll get the same answer? You know, if you don't get the same answer, how the hell can you recover from something if you don't know what the hell's wrong with you? You know, I had a lot of theories and ideas about what I thought an alcoholic was. But I loved the meetings. I really, really did. I love the meetings. To this day, they're still the high point of my life. I love the fellowship-related activities we enjoy here. Uh, I, I love running into people when I go to different meetings around the country and stuff like that. It's really a joy. And this was no exception. And I felt that sense of people at last understanding what was going on with me. Now, about two weeks more passed by, and I was still in this place, and there was a guy there who'd been there about uh, a week or two before uh, I had, and George had arrived, and we were going to hook up when we got out. And this fellow got discharged, and I think I had about 10 days left. And within four days of him being discharged, I can't even recall what his name was then, he was back again, and he was absolutely plowed, you know, drunk on his ass. And I remember thinking to myself, why did he do that? Why did he do that? No awareness of what alcoholism was, thinking that there was a choice involved at that point in time. I thought to myself, I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to drink again. My God, this is the most wonderful life I've ever known. 
I had a super strong tradition three. First class desire to stop drinking. I hadn't read on page 24 of our big book where it says in the drinking of every alcoholic he passes into a stage where the most powerful tradition three, most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no event. And it tells us this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every situation, not a couple or a few, long before as is suspected. But I didn't know that then. And so I looked at this guy saying, why do they do that? I'm never going to do that. Why would he spend all this money and just go out and drink? He must be crazy. And so when I got out, I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was a very enjoyable experience for me. Three months went by, and I began to hear about... Uh, uh, a sponsorship. I began to hear some of the things that people talked about and I heard about getting a sponsor. So I didn't know what a sponsor was. I presumed it was some big wig in AA, you know. <laughs> and so I got some guy who became my sponsor and then I started looking at these steps that we have on the wall, you know. I did get a copy of the book and I read it. I even read the beginning of it, but not too much, you know. I read mostly the stories at the back of the book. Didn't relate to them too much. Uh, took me a hell of a lot more years to get to the solution in the front, you know, when, when I finally became like the guys at the back of the book. I wouldn't recommend you do it that way, though. So, um, he said to me, I said, well, how about these steps? He said, I don't worry too much yet, Derek. He says, you're still a bit shook, you know, and I says, fine, I am, and I'm enjoying myself. And six months passed by, and he, he asked me to volunteer as first secretary of a meeting, and I did, and it was uh, the meeting in Dana Point. And I was going with a lot of the people that had gone through this hospital unit with me, and uh, uh, one or two of them had started drinking again. I couldn't understand why they did that. Uh, I said to myself, that must be crazy, you know, because I was enjoying the best life I'd ever known now. Uh, some friends at sailboats used to go over to Catalina. I was making a hell of a lot more money now because I was going to work more regularly and wasn't squandering it and stuff. And I was enjoying myself. And we started in on the steps. Now, it's, uh, the way I worked the steps back then was a vast deal of difference to the way I finally got to work these steps when I was fortunate enough to have a man who had a spiritual awakening come into my life and bring this book alive for me. But step one I took to mean that, uh, you know, that we were powerless over alcohol or life would become unmanageable. And I took that to mean, well, you know, when I'm drinking, I'm insane. See? That's why my life's unmanageable. See, it never dawned on me, you know, that uh, everyone's insane when they're drinking, you know. I mean, you could probably admit that Mother Teresa is a sterling example of a spiritual lady, but, you know, give her a quart of Jack Daniels and an eight ball and how she'd be, you know. Put it up and anyone, you know. Huh? I didn't know that then, you know. So, step two was, you know, uh, believe in God. Well, I'm a good Catholic kid. I'd always believe in God. So that wasn't a problem. Step three was turn it over. You ever notice you can't turn it over, you know, with step one and two, you know? Five seconds after you turn it over, your brain jumps on you, you know? See, so I was playing Aunt Jemima with spiritual pancakes, you know, turn it over, turn it back, turn it over, turn it back. Yeah. And then I'd say things to people that hear, like, God never gives you more than you can handle. Bullshit. God always gives you more than you can handle, otherwise you wouldn't need him, you know? Why would you need him if he wouldn't give you more than you could handle? But I didn't know that. Though. That was step three. Step four took about a week. I suppose it was ten pieces of paper. I genuinely had a hard time writing down any bad things about myself. I'm a pretty good guy, as you can see. <laughs> and he told me to write down some good things about myself, too. So I didn't spare any of that. Step five, you know, my God, that must have taken about two hours if it took that long. You know, and then we burnt it. If there had been an eight-step amendment list, it would have gone with it. But there wasn't, because it wasn't a thorough moral inventory. 
Step six and seven was a half a page in the book. Say the prayer, blam, their character defects are gone. There you are, you know. Step eight, you know, well, I had a tough time thinking of people I made amends to. Yeah, that hurts, you know. Yeah. So nine, I said I'm sorry to whoever was appropriate. Step ten, when you're wrong, promptly admit it. Eleven, I started praying, you know. I always had prayed, like, God help me, stuff like that, you know. And I genuinely believed I'd had a spiritual experience. And I used to like to quote the gradual variety, you know. But, you know, I was very sincere. I'm making fun of it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. I did those steps with all of the sincerity that I was capable of, with the awareness I had, and with the directions I was given. That's what I did. You know, in, a, in, in, in one of Bill's writings, uh, as Bill sees it, I think it's on page 91 or something like that, or 51, it says, our first obligation, our first must to the newcomer is an adequate presentation of the program of recovery, singular the program of recovery and so i got the most adequate presentation i had and i read this book but it just didn't come alive but my life got a lot better and the way i carried the message the message whatever that was was i would take someone else to a care unit or bring them to a meeting that's all i knew how to do i didn't know anything about telling a person how to give them directions to get down on my knees show them how to take a third step i didn't know anything about working one-on-one -on -one with another alcoholic I didn't know anything about a vital spiritual experience. I didn't know about a complete psychic change that I really needed. I couldn't adequately carry the message that was in that book, but I adequately carried whatever it was I had. And because it was working, because I was not drinking, see, therefore I felt great. And a year passed and I took my first year. And somebody said, this is Derek, he works a great program. There must have been 17 programs that day. Good programs, great programs, simple programs, spiritual programs, my program, your program, his program. A lot of other programs. And so I was working my program. Eighteen months went by. And somewhere around about eighteen months, I began to get a little restless, a little irritable, a little discontent. But Dr. Silkworth talked about they are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. And there I was, a little restless. And I didn't know I was restless. I'd go to a few more meetings, but I was getting bored. And out of the blue, I got a phone call from this guy, an uh, Irish guy who'd been back up in Cape Cod. And he was buying a business down in, in Miami. And he wanted me to run it and be part owner in it and to sort of hire and fire. And he asked me if I was interested. And I was working with a company called Hutton at the time. And this was around about the summer of 1982. And I was interested. So I flew up to Cape Cod and I flew into Boston Airport. And I remember landing in Boston Airport, and uh, I sat in the bar there having a couple of Perrier's or soda waters or whatever it was, and the plane, a little small four-seater plane I was waiting on to take me over to Cape Cod was delayed. And uh, I sat there, and finally, out of nowhere, into my hand came a vodka and tonic. To this day, I don't ever remember ordering it strange mental blank spot that Fred talks about in chapter 3. Strange mental blank spot. Now, because I'm bodily different, the book tells me that the phenomena craving takes place once I take any alcohol into my system. So I had another one, thinking I was choosing that. Now, I remember I had to meet this particular guy, and so I decided, you know, that I better stop, and I found it troublesome to stop. I wanted to drink more, and I was really worried and fearful at this stage. And so I went to see this guy, 
And the following day, when our business was concluded, I got the plane back. And I remember having plenty more on the plane. And within two weeks, I was back in that same awful hell I was lived in before. And I went back to my local meeting, finally after two weeks down in Dana Point, and I said, I don't know why I drank. I don't know why I drank. And I didn't. And there were a couple of answers thrown out. One of the most common one that you hear was uh, people say, well, maybe you slipped up in some of your meetings. And I thought about that. Maybe I have. And so people said, maybe go to 90 meetings in 90 days and stuff like that. And I thought about that. And I said to myself, well, maybe I'll do that. But the person that made the most sense to me then, then, not now, doesn't make any sense at all now, was the man who said to me, I guess you chose to drink. He said, nobody held you down and poured it down your throat. And I thought about that. There hadn't been anybody else there. How could I explain to myself why it was this drink arrived in my head? Most of us are unwilling to admit we are real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is mentally different from his fellows. See, I didn't know anything about the obsession. How was I going to explain it when I didn't know about the obsession condemning me to drink against my will? See, I didn't know that. So I thought I was choosing. And so I said to myself, well, maybe that's true. But you see, three months later, the same thing happened again on a trip over to Ireland. Six months later, it happened again. And I was in another recovery home. That was the summer of 1982. My date of sobriety is October 7, 1991, nine years later, nine long years later. In all of those nine years, I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. In all of those nine years, I watched many members of Alcoholics Anonymous die. I watched a whole bunch of them die sober by suicide, blown their brains out, dry, sober, not drinking, not drinking. A good friend of mine, a fellow that I've been working with for a while that just couldn't, could not or would not see her way of life, blew his brains out here about three months ago. I didn't know any of that. And when I wasn't drinking, I was getting more restless, more irritable, more discontent, this progressive insanity of the mind. And because I thought I'd worked the steps, the only thing I knew how to do was go to meetings. And so I would come back to meetings, and I would listen to the things that people would tell me. Don't quit before the miracle happens. And then I would sit on a lot of bar stools waiting for the miracle happen, but it didn't happen. This man, Jim H., who's got 60-something years of sobriety, started off the conference in Tucson by saying, I'd like to address why the recovery rate in Alcoholics Anonymous has fallen to 3%. 97% of our members aren't getting one. I don't mean to be depressing, but that's a man who's sober since October 12, 1934. And so my experience of succeeding, really succeeding at death, because you see, not all of people in Alcoholics Anonymous are real alcoholics. Some people are certain kinds of hard drinkers. I'm a real alcoholic. I can do nothing about the first drink. So this obsession was getting more powerful in my mind now. And I started to try all kinds of things. You know, I started remembering my last drink. I'd come out of a recovery home, determined never to drink again. I'd go to meeting after meeting after meeting, and I'd remember my last drunk until my last drunk became that drunk. And that couldn't work. And things started to get worse. Insanity started to get worse. I didn't know what was going on with me. I really didn't understand what was happening to me. You see, our book talks about if you've decided you want what we have, 
And that book was written by the first hundred men and women. It was written by Bill Wilson about the first hundred men and women. And I thought the we in the big book was everybody in the room. But it was about the first hundred men and women. What was it these first hundred men and women had? If you have decided you want what we had, you know, and I wanted your wife, your car, your money or something. I didn't know what it was you had. And they'd come out with statements like what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. See, what it was like for me, it was hell. It was a living hell because nothing ever happened. And then chapters of the agnostic, I found out something where it said they tell how the change came over them. The change. What are they talking about, the change? The change was the complete psychic change that's talked about by Dr. Silkworth. The transformation of the mind that Dr. Carl Jung talks to Roland Hazard about on page 26 and 27 seems to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men and women, are suddenly cast on one side. A spiritual awakening. Having had a spiritual awakening, I didn't know any of that. And so my share was about what it was like, and it would run for 59 minutes of what it was like, and it was a long drunk log and then I'd tell you, read the book, go to meetings, and don't drink. See, that's what happened and what it's like now. But nothing ever happened. There was no change that ever came over me. So I couldn't claim what these hundred men and women claimed. I couldn't claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection, because there was no spiritual progress. There was just periods of drinking and periods of not drinking. And the periods of not drinking were awful because I'd sit in meetings getting worse and worse and worse, going progressively more insane, sitting on my hands, my ass had long since fallen off, you know? And someone would say in the right place and I'd go, my God, what is it I have to do? I didn't work with any other alcoholics. I didn't know about that. Nothing happened because I didn't know what the process involved. I didn't know that this big book was a method of coming into an awareness of God. And so there were amazing things that happened. I mean, I was left with my cat Sparky and I'd moved into the office now, you know? And I would sit in the office, you know, looking at stocks and things and saying, Sparky, what will we buy today? And then one day the magazine came. It was a travel magazine. And here I am now. I'd taken to wearing a hairpiece in those days, by the way. You know, I had to preserve my good looks. And this magazine came and there was a beautiful blonde on the front cover and it says, wouldn't you rather be in Fiji? I said, shit, yes, of course I would. The next thing I knew, I was in Fiji and the outer islands, you know, and I wanted to find God out there. And the king of the island turned out to be a rum king. He'd stopped drinking kava and was drinking rum and nearly died out there, you know. And then I was living in the little town of Davis and there was a girl I was going out with there and uh, I found this preacher fellow and... Uh, he had, she was from New Zealand, and her parents, 30 or 40 years ago, had been converted by this guy. And here he was in Davis. Now, if that isn't a sign from God, I don't know what is. So I would go around to his house, and I'd pray in the morning. And one day, he took me over to the Sacramento Revival Center, and I said, this is it. This is going to happen here. And then I knew what the problem was immediately. You see, as a Catholic, I'd only got a light sprinkling. What I needed was the full immersion. There I was in the church, you know, and the call came, and off came the hairpiece, and in I went, you know. And everybody came out and they were all talking in tongues. Well, I'm an alcoholic, you know, so Ula Makamba, you know, hey, you know, it was great, you know. I mean, I'm in the church and I'm going, God saves, you know, and three days later I had a joint to intensify the experience. That was the end of that, you know. See, that didn't work. You know? All the bloody ideas I tried, you know, to try and get sober wouldn't work. In desperation, I'd try and figure this out. And I'd be carted back down to that bloody place in Calistoga again, you know. That's how I wound up moving there.
And the old man that ran that place, I used to say to myself, I'd hear those damn turkeys out there again. I'd say, Jesus, why am I here again? You know, how does this happen? Blackouts. Ever progressive insanity. Worse and worse and worse and worse. No damn solution at all. What was I going to do? And I watched people dying. One fellow was seven years sober, blew his brains out, you know. Couldn't understand what was wrong with me. And you know the worst thing that ever went on, even more than all of that, was the loss of my dignity. You know, the book talks about it engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. Brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment. And I would think back over my life and ask myself how it could come to this. How could it have come to this? How could I have lost? What happened to that little, little boy that left Ireland when he was 18 years old, 19 years old, with head full of dreams? How could it have come to this? What was really going on? Couldn't get an answer to it. Pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. Pitiful. I prayed and I couldn't seem to get any relief. I prayed and I drank. I drank and I prayed. I'd make it through maybe three months and bam, then I'd fall off again, not knowing why. I couldn't give myself any satisfactory reason. I wanted, above all things, to stop drinking, but I couldn't. Couldn't stop. Couldn't stop. Absolutely powerless. Absolutely powerless. No amount of meetings seemed to work for me. I didn't know what to do. Around about 1990, I was carted off to this place again. I, I never remember getting carted off towards the end. I'd just wake up there, and I knew that damn room by now, you know, and the turkeys would be going outside, and I would ask myself, how on earth am I here again? And I went through another week, some detox, and I got out of there really terror-stricken at this point in time, wanting to stop drinking with everything that was in me, no ability to do so, nothing working. And I went over to Sacramento to a meeting at Sutter Hospital, and I stood up in the meeting and I said, you know, I said, my name is Derek, I'm an alcoholic. I said, I've tried everything to stop drinking. Is there anyone here who can help me? And the man came to me after the meeting and he said, you know, there's a fellow over in Davis I'd like you to call. There's a guy called Jack, Jack May. Jack died last year, about seven or eight years sober, helped a lot of people, came into the spiritual solution. And Jack said to me, uh, I picked up the phone and I talked to this guy and he said, uh, he said, Derek, he said, if you're, if it's the first time I'd heard this, maybe other people had said it to me, but I'd never heard it. He says, Derek, if you're a real alcoholic, as I am, he says, you have an obsession of the mind that's condemning you to drink against your will. And he says, once you start drinking, you've little or no control over the amount you take. He said, now that's the symptom and it'll kill you, but that's not the problem. He says, the problem is you're maladjusted to life and you're in full flight from reality. He said, the symptoms are listed on page 52 of her textbook. He says, you can't control your emotional nature. You're having trouble with personal relationships. You can't make a living. You're full of fear. You can't seem to be of real help to other people. You have a feeling of uselessness. And I went, holy shit, that's me. That's me to a T. That's me when I'm not drinking. That's me when I'm not drinking. He says, if you like, he says, I'll come by tomorrow. And he says, I'd like you to come to a book study that's being held over in somebody's home. And I said, okay, I'll be there. And Jack came and got me the following day. And he took me to a little home uh, in Davis. And I walked in. There was a, a white board at the top of the room. And there was a man sitting there. A man who's my sponsor today, a man called Michael. And there's about six people there. And for the first time in my life, this man looked at me. And he said, my name is Michael. I'm a recovered alcoholic. 
I'm a recovered alcoholic. I said, you can't recover. And he laughed at me and he said, it's amazing how you defend your right to be miserable, he said. <laughs> oh, you can't recover? Let's get pissed off about it. Well, I'm a recovered alcoholic. You see, those symptoms are gone. And he proceeded to take me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that I'd never known before. Roman numeral 13, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered, have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The hopeless state of mind is the obsession of the mind that's condemning me to drink against my will. Hopeless state of mind and body. Hopeless state of body is once I start, I can't control it. And I can't not start because I have an obsession of the mind. Then he said, to show other alcoholics precisely, precisely, clear cut, not vague, how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Wham. Then he proceeded to take me into the doctor's opinion. He proceeded to show me the prognosis of Dr. Selkworth, who treated 50,000 alcoholics and drug addicts, and 2% of them recovered. And even Dr. Selkworth doubted whether these people were real alcoholics. Selkworth, in 1929, worked as medical director of the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City that was run by Charlie Towns. It was the world's most accredited medical facility for alcoholics in those times. Selkworth treated 50,000 alcoholics, drug addicts. None of them ever recovered. Two people, two percent probably. That's like taking a gun with 50 bullets in it, putting 49 in the chambers and leaving one blank and spinning the chamber and going blank. Odds aren't good. Then he gave the prognosis for alcoholism. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion is that most alcoholics are doomed. It's incurable if you're a real alcoholic. And then he proceeded to describe how Wilson, on his third trip into Towns Hospital, started to present the spiritual ideas that he got from a sponsor, Ebby Thatcher, who had got them from Roland Hazard, who got them from the Oxford Group. The vital spiritual experience. He proceeded to show me that Dr. Carl Jung, probably one of the greatest psychiatrists that's lived this century, Dr. Carl Jung had looked at Roland Hazard and says, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover. Page 26 of that book, he showed me where Roland Hazard, that certain American businessman, who was chairman of a corporation which today is known as Allied Chemical, very wealthy man, had gone to every psychiatrist in the States that he could go to, floundered from one sanitarium to the other, desperately trying to stop drinking, everything failed. He goes to Carl Jung and he spends one year with him in Zurich, one whole year with him. He believes he's acquired such a knowledge of the mind and its body that relapse is unthinkable. Within two weeks after leaving Zurich, Roland Hazard is drunk again. He goes back to Carl Jung, and that was the prognosis Carl Jung delivered. He says, with many, the methods I have used are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your type. Roland didn't know what to do. He asked, Carl, is there any exceptions? Carl said yes, but he said there were phenomena. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. He told them his religious convictions were very good, but they didn't spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Roland went to the Oxford Group, had an experience. And those steps of the Oxford Group, the first four, were what became adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous. I never knew this. I have been working in this book for years to try and control and enjoy my drinking or to try and control my drinking by not drinking. I never knew that the purpose of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was to show me precisely 
how to have a vital spiritual experience that would solve my problem. I never knew that. And so we did the investigation that went up to page 60. It never dawned on you why step one is on page 59. You know, it's not in the beginning on the first page of the book. It doesn't say, well, now let's just cut this drinking out, you know. Just don't take the first drink. It comes on page 59 because there's a whole bunch of an investigation that's needed to go through so we can be convinced that we're suffering from a hopeless condition of mind and body. And when I was convinced I was hopeless, at last my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. And I started to go through the steps. And somewhere around the fourth step, I was going out with a lady that was for about six years, and she broke it off with me. And this was around 1990. I started working with other alcoholics, taking them through the book the way I had been taken through. Thank you. But when she left, this obsession came screaming back in. And I headed over to the Fox and Goose in Sacramento. They had to get a little bit of British culture, you understand, you know. And the Fox and Goose was a, a crazy kind of a pub. Nobody ever lied over there, you know. And uh, I remember sitting there, some of the crazy things that happened over there. I remember sitting there one night and I was uh, this, this, I watched this miraculous transformation of this girl occur at the bar. You know, the more I drank, she became ever more beautiful. And then I said to her, you know, I waxed a little bit to her. And then I said to her, you know, I'm from Ireland. I thought that would really do it, you know. And she looked at me and she said, how long does it take to drive there? I remember that was the lowest point in my life. You know, my best shot, you know, this is, this is where I'm at, you know. And you know, that year, that year of knowing what the problem was, and then it all got lost between the haziness in my mind, was the worst year of my life. Because I knew I was hopeless and there wasn't anything I could do. It was a miserable, awful year. And it was around about October, Friday was October 4th of 1991. I went over and I started drinking in this place and I started drinking some beer and I, there was a rugby, two rugby guys there and I remember we started talking and we went on to some other bar to uh, drink some whiskey and uh, I had a rented car at that time, I couldn't get it together even to buy a car, I'd wrecked the car I had and the, we crashed into the back of another car he was taken off to the police station and I have little or no memory of what happened that night, of a hazy recollection of getting a cab back to my place in Davis and bringing the taxi driver in and uh, drinking out of a half-gallon jug of vodka that I bought in the liquor store. The next day, I have a vague memory of some drug deal going on down in South Sacramento. And, you know, I, I was carrying a 357 in a shoulder holster at this time. I mean, 40 pounds underweight. I mean, if I'd fallen down, I couldn't have got up with the weight of this damn thing, you know. I, mean, I was insane on a, on a mixture of, you know, Valium, as the book talks about, the sedatives we use to taper off. Just insane, just out of my mind. And I woke up on Monday, October 7th, with a half a bottle of booze left there, and it was like I came out of this haze, and I knew it was all over. And I remember taking this gun out and loading it, and saying to myself, you know, I just want out of this hell that's become my life. I just want out of it. And I loaded the bullets into that gun, and I looked to the big book, and everything had gotten sort of mixed up in my head. And I threw the book across the room, and I said, you fail me. And I had a Bible there, and I threw that away, and I said, that's failed me. And you know, with the decision to end my life came the first moment of real peace that I'd felt in years. And I sat there thinking back over my life. And I, what happened next was truly miraculous because uh, 
There's a friend of mine who's been sober about 35 years in this program, a, a Irish guy, uh, lives in Sacramento, a fellow called Brian. And the door must have been open because the next thing I knew, this man walked in with his wife and he took in the scene and he took the gun away from me. And I remember crying, just crying. And I said, Brian, it's no use. I said, I've been a member of AA for 11 years. I've tried everything. I said, I'm just too far gone. I said, I can't work. I can't stop drinking. There's, there's nothing I can do. There's absolutely nothing I can do. I've tried everything. And he looked at me and he says, I think you've finally taken step one. Never forget that. And you know, you don't take step one. Step one takes you. Step one takes you. It's about being convinced you're hopeless. It's about being convinced you're hopeless. And his wife said to me, she said, uh, would you not like to go down, she said, to that place in Calistoga for a week and break the cycle of the spree. I don't know where she got these words from. It makes so much sense now. So the craving would go away. And they packed up some stuff for me. I remember little of what I said or did that day. And they drove me down there. And the old guy picked me up at the door. He looked at me and he says, not you again. Not you again, you know. And I didn't have a really bad detox. It was about two days. I don't know why. And I wandered outside. And all I felt like was just the, the absolute brokenness of self-pity. Just the wonderful line in the big book where Bill says, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I'd been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I felt like a whale that had just been washed up on the shore. The, the courage to do battle was gone. I was just beaten. There was no more, it says in the book, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. There was no more fear. There wasn't even any more self-seeking because all the relationships that I'd ever tried to make me happy were gone. You know, I wasn't self-seeking to try and get a job anymore or build up the business because that was over. There wasn't any self-delusion about any of it. I realized I was a goner. I realized I was hopeless. And I sat there. And I wandered out the back and I uh, looked up and there's a mountain there called Mount St. Helena. And I used to have this crazy idea sometimes I'd wake up, you know, maybe if I could climb that mountain I'd be like Moses, you know, I'd get something up there and I'd be able to be sober or whatever it was. But there was a little grotto out there in the back uh, and I had passed this place many times and uh, there was a little plaque on the wall and it said, God could and would if he were sought. God could and would if he were sought. I began to think, you know, it didn't say God could and would if he were believed in. God could and would if he were prayed to. God could and would if he were sought. I remember sitting down on that little bench out in the back asking myself about this seeking and then Michael's words came back to me over the year. Lack of power was our problem. Lack of power. Lack of power. I always thought it was lack of this, lack of sex, you know, lack of money, lack of this, lack of that. I mean, I was a lack of lack of guy, you know, but it was in lack of power, lack of power. And as I sat there, the, the experience that came to me was the most amazing thing. I remember sitting there and there was a squirrel that came out and it was eating nuts up on its hind legs. And I watched it taking these nuts away and coming back. And out of nowhere, the thought came to me, you know, this squirrel is just taking enough nuts away for one winter. And God, I'd piled up enough nuts for so many winters. I'd, I'd been a millionaire, I'd walked out of my home, and a million wasn't enough, I wanted more. Always more. You know, the relationship wasn't the right relationship. There wasn't enough of that. You know, if I was with one woman, I'd want to be with another woman. If I had this amount of money, I'd want to... My favorite place was somewhere else. You know, anywhere else. You know? But I looked at this, never enough. And it was October, it was the fall of the year, and the leaves were falling off the tree. 
And another thought came to me, and it might sound bizarre, but it suddenly dawned on me that there was never a tree that hung on to its leaves and said, you know, I froze my ass off this last year, I'll just hang on to them this year. <laughs> you know, let them go. And I began to see the trust that everything had. And, you know, the sun came up in the morning, season followed season, and as I looked around me in that beautiful valley, I began to say to myself, there has to be something. There has to be a power at work here. I couldn't define it. But the belief was more than a belief, it was a knowing. I knew there was something. For the first time in my life, I knew there was something. And I knew immediately I tried to define it, that I'd be into a belief of the mind again. I just knew it was there. And suddenly the things that Michael had said, our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. We found the great reality, these hundred men and women said, deep down within. Deep down within. It was a part of our makeup. And it was blocked by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Maybe if these things could be taken out of me, this great reality, God within, could disclose itself to me. After all, he knew he, who he was. It was me that had the problem. And somewhere in that situation, the tiniest flicker of hope was born. Just hope. And when I got out of there, Michael had gone back to Albuquerque working with people down there, and I went to a man that he had taken through this process. And I start going to book studies in this guy's home. Twice a week, three times a week. And I started working with other alcoholics out of the book immediately. When I went through the doctor's opinion, I took somebody else through the doctor's opinion. That was October 7, 1991. November 30, 1991, I took my third step in a lady's kitchen on my knees, voicing it out loud without reservation, what the book tells me to do. And the impact was amazing. I didn't see any lights, but I had a sense of a presence in an intuitive way within me that was just amazing. And it was there that I got the courage to honestly face my problems, something I'd never done before in my life. I could honestly face your problems, but I was never able to honestly face mine. And there, for the first time, I did a fourth step the way it's outlined in the book. I listed people, principles, and institutions with whom I was angry. A feeling of displeasure directed at a person or object. There were over 300 people. There were many institutions. There were many principles. When I finished that, I went to the fourth column where it asked me, where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, or frightened? I began to see the beliefs, the theories, the rationalizations that had been driving me blindly all my life. Then I did a thorough fear inventory at 153 fears. Then I did a sexual inventory that started on page 68 with 17 headings, the first of which many of us needed an overhauling there. I did a five-column inventory on sexuality. Whom had we hurt? And then, out of that, I was able to form the sexual ideal that it tells me to form on page 69. And then it told me on page 70 we were prepared for a long talk, and I shared that in my fifth step. It took 56 hours to do my fifth step. And the most amazing thing happened, because on page 75, there's seven promises. We can be alone in perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And I began to experience God in a way that was amazing. I began to realize that within all of us is the great reality. The light that lights me is the same light that lights you. The life that lives me is the same life that lives you. Life cannot be killed. Life is eternal. Life is eternal. This body, this thing that's being animated by something called life, that will drop away, but the life is eternal. I began to see where it was possible to come into the consciousness of that life. You might ask yourself, 
Is it you that's digesting your food right now? Or is it that life that's digesting your food? You might ask yourself, are you living or are you being lived? And when people die, do we not say the life left them? It's in us now. And I began to have that awareness. And it told me, the, drink, the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Bill talks about it in step six, having been granted a perfect release from alcoholism. The obsession was gone. Gone. Then I went on in six and seven, the step that sorts the men out from the boys. The deepening awareness, the realization that, that this brain mind, this ego mind is nothing. That I must come into the awareness of God within. I must do that. I must find this life within me. And the method of doing that is to start looking at these character defects and where they come from and all the shortcomings that develop from them. And then I went on, able to make go and forgive and make amends for the first time in my life, real amends, not from some sense of superiority, but because I was able to see the oneness in all of us, what the book calls the promises, the, the brotherhood of the spirit. And then the amazing awareness of those step nine promises came to me. But you see, this time it was the spirit of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, what the spirit of alcohol did for me when I was 18. God's spirit was now doing for me. Because you see, the step nine promises are the promises of self-realization, the realization of who I am. I'm not this body. I'm not this stupid mind. If I am made in the image and likeness of God, it cannot be this. But within all of us is something that's living us. And you know, I was then able to perfect and enlarge this by going further because it tells us on page 84 after step 9, we have entered the world of the spirit. And you cannot enter the world of the spirit unless you're aware you are spirit. Step 10 is the practicing of the presence, watching for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment and fear when they crop up, not if they crop up, when they crop up. Discussing them, asking God to remove them. And the deepening of that awareness is step 11. Watching is step 10, praying is step 11. Within a year of, of living this way of life, I had an experience that was just so profound. I had an experience like Bill had. I didn't need it, but it was a wonderful experience. It was an experience where I saw beyond, I was sitting in a church and the next thing I knew it disappeared. And I, I was, I, it was just amazing what happened. I was in the process of making my nine step amends. It was like I stood on this huge place with all the stars of the universe there and I felt my parents for the first time and they had died. And I felt their presence and I was able to understand for the first time how much my parents had loved me and how powerless they felt over my alcoholism and how they never wanted to bring it up, how desperate they were. And I remember saying, I'm so sorry. And I remember saying to myself, my God, I've looked for you for so long. And you know, in that moment, I knew who I was finally, and I knew who you were, even if you didn't. And the only thing I ever wanted to do after that was carry this message, this method of awakening to anybody who hasn't heard it. That's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And that's the only thing I've ever done since. I stopped being a stockbroker two years ago. I live with four people right now. When Helen and I get married in September and after we come back from London next week, there'll be six of us living together, living the spiritual way of life. You know, And I began to see that the spiritual lie of life is threefold. See, the introspection within ourselves that we do in the steps, the constant working with others, the giving forth of ourself unselfishly. Initially, I did an unselfish thing for a selfish motive of staying sober. But on page 159, it tells us 
Though they knew they must help others if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. It was transcended by the joy they found in giving themselves for others. And it is a joy. You know, I made a lot of money in my life, and I'm a worldly guy. But nothing has ever compared to the feeling when someone's looked into my eyes and said, Derek, thank you. When you see that spark going off in your brother or your sister, when you can transcend personalities and see that the life and the light that's in your brother is the same life that's in you. And that's why we have in that chapter the family afterwards, the family after the spiritual awakening, when we meet on the basis of love and tolerance. That's why our book ends with a wonderful chapter entitled A Vision for You. A Vision for You. Only spiritual awakened people get visions. And then the promise of the 12th step occurs on page 153 or 155, I'm not sure which. It's from the second to the fifth line that says, then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. Life, that which lives you. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, I looked for this thing everywhere. I often find that people who are looking for God the most are the people who aren't calling it God. They're not calling it God. They're like Han Solo in Star Wars, you know. But they're looking for him. I was always looking for wholeness. I was always looking for that feeling of wholeness within myself. I was always looking for joy, for purpose, for meaning in life. But I could never find it. Never find it. Every attempt I ever made through money, through careers, through all of those things, all wound up like sand. Today I have a way of life that's, as Bill said, indescribably more wonderful as time passes. Just over a year ago I met the lady I'm going to marry down in San Diego. About five or six weeks ago, uh, we weren't really even dating each other. An awareness of things started to happen. You know, I, I can't begin to tell you what's possible when you can come close to people beyond what we see with these eyes. Because you see, this stuff is the personality. And all personalities are different. But another word for the life that lives us is divine principle. And I have learned how to put and see divine principle before personality. Because the divine principle in all of us is one. It's one. You know, and if you look around our world, as Lois often said, perhaps these 12 steps were meant to more than just to awaken alcoholics. Our original 12 steps said, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and practice these principles in all our affairs. Every Wednesday in our home, we have a meeting. It's taken from a vision for you, for it tells us, it says, besides these gatherings, it became customary to set aside one night a week for anyone and everyone interested in a spiritual way of life. And some of the things I've seen are amazing. Wives, husbands, children of alcoholics coming into a spiritual way of life. And you know, Everything I ever tried never gave me this. I look for God in religions. I look for him in beliefs. I look for him in theories. I look for him in relationships, all based on self. I look for it in money. I look for it in drugs. I look for it in rock and roll. I look for it in travel. I look for it everywhere. And after analyzing all of those places, in the last analysis, I was to find it deep down within me, where these hundred men and women told me it would be found. That book delivered to me Everything it said it would deliver to me. All of the promises are true in my life. And they're being perfected and enlarged in my life in, in such a way that's, that's just amazing. 
You know, mere non-drinking is kind of a small, silly little goal to have in life. I've learned that sobriety is just one of the byproducts of spiritual awakening. Just one of them. Just one of them. That's all it is. I had to find this power and have an awakening to get sober, to be sober. But when I made sobriety by itself, I didn't answer. On page 77, it tells us the threefold process of AA. It says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. On page 84, it tells us our function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And then it tells us our code, that love and tolerance of others are our code. I don't have that power. I don't have the power to practice those things. But when this new life entered into me, which is in me, which was blocked by all of this stuff through the amazing process of these steps, I was able to come into something that's amazing. And I've had the great grace of being able to lead others into it too. You know, we celebrated this year something called the Resurrection. Every year I do a, a workshop called Sierra whatever. The 97 was this year. It was the fourth annual one. We had 90 people at it. I watched amazing things happen as we went through this book studying. Four years ago when we did the first one, we had 18 people. You know, maybe now, if we take a look around us and what's going on within our fellowship, we can reactivate the wonderful message that's in this book and find this thing in you, this life that lives us all. But God, if we look around our world, if, if we don't notice it's the 11th hour, there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. There has to be more to life. There has to be a meaning, a purpose, a joy in life. That's what I found in these steps. And that's what these 100 men and women had. And that's what many of these old timers had. And that's what we need to discover in you, and that's what seems to be what's happening within us. So don't miss it. Take this wonderful gift, you know, for $6.75, you know, and working with a lot of other alcoholics and keeping in a fit spiritual condition. The miraculous thing is guaranteed with that sort of attitude. And so abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Give so freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thanks for having me.